Thanks for joining us for LifeWords Q&A with David Ray. I'm Andrew Morrison. Over the next 15 minutes, we're going to be uh, discussing your questions with David and looking at the issues of praying uh, literally for death. Also, the question of uh, sexual attraction and lust and also looking at uh, help and asking for help. That's all ahead of us here on today's episode of LifeWords. David, again, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Andrew. Well, David, let's start off with uh, our first question. It's, uh, I have a family member who's been sick and in distress for quite a while. They're a Christian and they simply want to die and have asked me to pray for this to happen. I feel uncomfortable. Should I? Well, yes, I think it's reasonable to feel uncomfortable. Praying for, for someone's death, death is, is not easy to come to terms with. But the very fact that you're uncomfortable doesn't mean it doesn't tell me whether it's right or wrong. Um, you can feel uncomfortable in many situations, um, but that doesn't determine the rightness or wrongness of something. Um, I personally would have no problem, but, but even though I might feel uncomfortable, about praying for someone's death. Indeed, I, I, I've been in these situations as a pastor and, and I've um, respected that person's wishes and prayed for death. But obviously not in a good written sort of sort of way or despairing sort of way. Oh, Lord, this person's had enough, you know, you know let them die. I mean, obviously not. But in this case, we're praying for someone, according to the question, we're praying for someone to enter Jesus' presence in his fullness. You see, when this person is saying, please, please pray that I might die, what they're saying is, please um, pray that I may enter into Jesus' fullest presence and enjoy eternal life with him in the new heavens and the new earth in that place where every tear will be wiped away. Well, come on. I mean, what a, what a great thing to look forward to. And so we're praying for that person to experience those blessings of heaven. Why not pray for such a good thing? Now, we may be uncomfortable because we are sort of overcome with this thought of this person dying, but there is a time to live. There is a time to die. We've all got our lifespans. And this particular person, as, as the questioner says, been sick and in distress for quite a while, well, I presume uh, we're saying, God, there's a time to live and a time to die. And we, we just, this person, you've heard this person's wishes, this person's desires. Um, may this be the time to die? Because, you see, it, it, it troubles me that, the, the, that some people ha hang on in life because they feel they're letting the side down by dying. And, and this apparently, not only within the Christian church, but outside it by experts who tell us this, that, that some people um, will hang on to life because the friends and family are around are somehow or other urging them to cling to life when in fact all they want to do is to let go and die. But they feel as though, oh gosh, all these people around about me, I don't want to let them down. Look, I think in a Christian context particularly, I think it's perfectly appropriate for a Christian or a group of Christians to say to that person, hey, if, if you want to go to be with the Lord, forget the, the word death for the moment, if you want to go and be with the Lord, we're very, very happy to pray for you, not only as a mark of respect for your wishes, but also as a recognition of a promise to eternal life. Um, stubbornly praying for more living might sound heroic, but it actually might ignore realities and actually be quite hurtful. Um, I don't think we should go around automatically assuming that this person's got to overcome this, uh, this. Let's assume it's an elderly person who's been sick and in distress for a while, according to this questioner. I think it's, it might sound heroic to say, no, we want you to pull through. No, we want you to get better and so on. No, come on, there is a time to live and a time to die. And while we might feel uncomfortable, I think it is perfectly appropriate and natural to pray in the right context, in respect of that person's wishes, to pray for death, because from the Christian point of view, um, you're not just praying for death, you're praying for eternal life. 
Could you, David, sort of give us an example of how you might pray for someone in that sense? Oh, well, I, I, I think what I would again pray for is to say, Lord, this person longs to be with you. This person has known you and you know them. They long to be with you. They've, they've, they've lived a, a, a good long life, whatever it might be. They've lived, even if it's not a long life, they've, it seems, Lord, as though they've lived their measure of their days here on earth. And, and their desire is, this is assuming it is their desire, yep. Assume, we assume, Lord, their desire is now to be with you. So I please pray that in your mercy you would um, take this person to be with yourself. Not, I wouldn't say pray that the person die, but pray that they would um, move into eternal life. I've used the phrase, and I've used the phrase at many funerals that I think is appropriate, that, Lord, this this may this chapter of their life now draw to a close, but may the story of their life go on yeah. so we're closing a chapter we're not ending the whole story so i'd be praying in those terms in a very positive way lord this person has had their life it seems here on earth and now longs to go to be with you now lord we put them in your hands we can't we can't control that but lord you've heard this person's desire and we pray that you would look positively on this request and uh, bring that person to yourself and comfort us as we say goodbye that, that yeah. sort of thing yeah Great. Thanks, David. You're listening to LifeWords Q&A with David Ray and I'm Andrew Morris. We've got uh, our second question coming in, David. It says, uh, Jesus condemns lust, but I want to know how is lust different from sexual attraction? Surely Jesus isn't condemning that. No, you're right. There is an attraction. Uh, there is a difference, and Jesus certainly wouldn't be condemning sexual attraction. After all, he made us sexual beings and can't believe he calls sexual attraction in itself sinful. In other words, we can't say, well, God created male and female, and intrinsically that is sexuality, but you mustn't find anything attractive in the opposite sex. I mean, that, that that's rather silly because sexuality was one of the good things that God made. But, you see, the difference there is that lust is a certain sort of sexual attraction. First of all, it's, it's a desire for what is not legitimately ours. See, for example, if you're married, uh, you can find your marriage partner very sexually attractive. And no one's going to have a problem with that. No one's going to say, hey, watch it, watch it, watch it. You know, you're finding your wife or your husband sexually attractive. Careful. Uh, you're not going to find anyone objecting to that. Though, of course, even then you need to be respectful of the partner and not simply see them as a sex object. But in the context, you see, when Jesus talks about lust, he's saying that adulterous relationships, which is sex outside of marriage, has its source in lust. And so what he's saying is the thought precedes the action. So in Jesus' thinking here, lust is linked to improper sex, sex outside its proper context. He's not talking about what we might call normal legitimate sexual attraction. He's talking about the sort of sexual attraction that leads us in the wrong direction. So let's let's unpack that just a little bit more. Um, this doesn't mean we can never find a person other than our marriage partner sexually attractive. As I said, that's that, that's impossible. We can't literally ignore another person's sexuality, go around mm -hmm. with their eyes closed or a paper bag over our head. Um, we, may, we may regard them as attractive, beautiful, charming, handsome or whatever. None of that needs to be lust. But here's the problem. Lust is not looking at someone and finding them sexually attractive. Lust is the second look. Lust is the third look. Lust is the lingering look. Uh, you see, to note a person's sexual attractiveness is not a problem, but to dwell on it, that's the danger. And I think that's what Jesus is referring to, because as you dwell on it, you start then 
fantasizing about doing something about it and being in that a wrong relationship. So Jesus is saying wrong sexual relationships don't just occur overnight. They spring from certain thoughts which were unhealthy in the first place. And those thoughts are not simply acknowledging someone's sexual attractiveness, but dwelling on it, the second look, the third look, and imagining yourself in certain sexual situations with that person. So Jesus is saying about lust, even if you do nothing about it, as it were, you have already sinned in your heart if you are focusing on that person's sexuality with such an idea that you would love to do something about it and even imagine yourself doing something about it. So lust has to do with a desire to engage sexually in the mind, if not the body, with someone who is not belonging to you. Sexual attraction, simple sexual attraction, quite different. But even there, beware, because simple sexual attraction, which is perfectly right, proper, normal, can tip over into lust if your mind determines to, as it were, linger and fantasize and imagine. Well, thanks, David. Uh, and I guess the issue of uh, uh, sexual attraction and lust has... Um, oh, exploded really with the the advent of the internet yes people we all could lust and find other people attractive before the advent of uh the the, the online world but it certainly has impacted christians and non-christians the same hasn't it david it's... oh yes it has and and i think uh, the problem with any sexual sin within the church or sexual issue within the church is that people who are, kept, are trapped in it tend to think oh i'm all alone well you're not uh, I can assure you, you are not alone. It is a very, very, very common problem. The whole question of lust or pornography or whatever all the other allied things are, it is an extremely common problem. And as you said, it, 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 we've got reasons why that is so. Please do not think that you are somehow rather uniquely bad or wicked or anything like that. That's not so. You are just part of the human race. Uh, and that please do not fall for the um, fallacious thinking that thinks that any sexual sin is intrinsically uh, the worst sort of sin. It's mm. not. And as I've said before, I hope I've stressed enough, please don't condemn yourself for being sexually attracted to someone uh, and calling it lust. That That is a false accusation on the part of the evil one. I think if, 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 if there are people battling with that issue, and I'd imagine that you know, the majority of Christians in some respects do battle with it at some stage, um, that, that the thing to do is not to sort of push it, push it away, as it were, to say, I am not going to lust after that person or these people. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. That's sort of almost like a way of forcing yourself to focus on the problem itself. For example, if I said to you or to anyone listening, please don't think of your tongue for the next 10 seconds. Uh, inevitably, you think of your tongue for the next 10 seconds. Um, and, and so if I say, I'm not going to think of that person for the next 10 seconds, I'm not going to think lustful thoughts for the next two days, really all you're doing is, as it were, having a focus on that very thing itself. It's far better to actually start thinking very positively, as it were. I'm, I'm not saying it's easy. And this could perhaps become an answer to yet another question later on. But the, the way you practice your so-called mind control there is to focus, as Paul says in Philippians, on what is good, what is honourable, what is true, what is right, and so on. As soon as those lustful thoughts come into your head, perhaps about an individual, uh, don't try to, as it were... Um, 
wrestle with the lust, instead start seeing that person in in the light of those verses in Philippians, I think it's verses 8 and 9 of chapter 4, uh, think of that person in those good and noble terms, or uh, perhaps don't think of the person at all, but perhaps another strategy is to say, I'm going to turn my mind from that and simply focus on some other things from the scripture or whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, don't just simply battle with it um, and wrestle with it internally, focus not on the lustful thought but on the good things and if you're lusting particularly after a certain individual I'd be daring enough to say from time to time apply Philippians 4, 8 and 9 to that and say look uh, uh, let's see that particular individual man or woman whoever it is in the way God sees them how is God seeing this person and and, and having done that and, and, and sought to do that with some measure of success failure whatever um, pray daily to God but Pray daily, not so much, oh, Lord, help me to conquer lust, but help me to focus my mind on what is good, honourable, noble, and so on, rather than seeing it in negative terms, I've got to fight lust, which, which is true to a degree. Lord, help me instead to get the focus on something else. Yeah, I, found, I think another strategy which is really helpful is to actually, if you trust uh, one or two people, is to actually have accountability partners and actually share it with them. And I think once you speak it out to someone, I think it, 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 that in itself can also break a lot of those oh, those it, mind games that's going yes. on. It, it does not only does it do that, Andrew, but it just confirms what I said at the outset there, that uh, uh, you realise that once you start opening up to other people about it, they say, you too? Oh, I have that problem too. And that is is a great weight off your shoulder because you mm. think, well, I'm battling this, but I'm not battling it alone. And therefore, Satan, who is accusing me of being the worst luster on the face of the universe, uh, no, you're not. Yeah, sort of cuts a kind of power. That's yeah. right. Thanks, David. Uh, we're moving on to our, uh, our final question. And it is, um, there's a person in our church who has uh, very great needs, but stubbornly refuses to accept help. Um, she insists she's okay and even gets uh, busy helping others. Can anything be done for her? There are, look, there are people like that. They're interesting people. Um, you can't knock them for wanting to help people, and they're often busy around the church helping people. That's wonderful. But there are people who find much of their identity in helping others. Um and if you then try to say to them, look, you need help yourself, suddenly their identity, no, that, that's not who I am. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not the person who is being helped. I'm the person who helps others. And there, there may even be people who are rescuers. And people are like that, sadly. Uh, there are people who, who are forever dedicated to helping unfortunate people. Now, that sounds okay, but it can be dangerous uh, because if you are forever dedicated to helping unfortunate people, you might be ignoring your own needs and you may be subtly ending up having others depend on you. And, and it may be that's what you, why you're wanting to rescue people, so that they become dependent on you. So a very good thing to help those who are unfortunate and so on, absolutely. But just be careful of your motives. I would say that if you're like this woman um, uh, that this question is talking about, who always needs to be helping others, and that's not a bad thing in itself. But, oh boy, if you're stubbornly refusing to help, accept help for yourself, I suspect you may be moving into that area of creating dependency, of saying, my identity is in helping other people and as a result they as it were become very 
uh, not totally dependent on me, but they become very much more responsive to me, and that's how I get my um, feeling good about myself. Now, your friend may not be like that. Um, it, it may not be anything quite as complex psychologically as that. It may be that she's just simply too proud to accept help. She wants to be known as the one who helps others. Um, and some people do not want to get, receive help because um, they don't want to be dependent on others. Um, or they don't want to put others out. Oh, don't bother helping me. You'll, I'll, I'll, you, you'll, you'll be, you'll, I'll be putting you out. Now, I think we've got to say to people like that. Um, look, the Christian Church is all about helping one another. And yes, it is so good that you are giving help to others. So good that you're doing that. But also within the Christian Church, there is a time for receiving. Um, that, that, that seems to be the whole philosophy of the body of Christ. We all need one another. So if one person in the church is saying, no, I don't need any of you, but boy, you need me, I think they're throwing the, the, the church dynamics out of kilter there. So I would be wanting to have a firm word with her, a nice, firm, gentle word with her about Christians that are help each other and how refusing appropriate help actually prevents the church working as it should. But in the end, you can't force help on anybody. It was interesting that how you explained uh, the, the helping um, and maybe it meeting other needs and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I was listening to a podcast by Timothy Keller, who is from Redeemer Presbyterian Church, and he was talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And I think he was saying, you know, gentleness and all that kind of stuff. Well, you can be gentle, but you might not be practicing gentleness. That's right. You might be a coward or, or right. and you're, you're not actually practicing being right. more, you know, speaking your mind and actually, do you, do you know what I mean? Like, oh, yes, yes, yes. You're, you're yes. actually showing some fruit of the spirit, but you're actually hiding behind that. Oh, yes. Yes. And I think gentleness is one of those classic cases where this person's known as a very gentle person, but they never stand up to anyone uh, or, or so on. Uh, there, there is a lot of subtlety in all our motivations and all our, our involvement in the church and beyond the church. And this particular person in the question is 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 uh, very much like that. Um, I think we've got to be very, very careful of the people who are always needing help from others and never off offering to give any themselves. That They become the victim type people uh, or of per person the per like the person's mentioned in the question the person who was always out to I've got to help other people I've got to help people but when they're ever asked about themselves sort of the the shutters go mm. come down as it were and they never talk about themselves I think there's some funny little things going on there and Timothy Keller I think has quite rightly pointed out some of the subtlety involved in even the good things we do uh, they can camouflage some things that are um, um, are not um, quite so good I mean People who do Q and A podcasts, for example, you yeah. know, can can hopefully be offering very wise counsel to people, but they can also be showing off their own opinions, can't they, Andrew? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you've been listening to LifeWords Q and A with David Ray, Andrew Morris. That would never happen. Um, <laughs> um, we will meet again next week. <laughs>